Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. Blank to the world, joy to the world. Blank, all ye nations rise. Come, all ye nations rise. What is it? Joyful, all ye nations rise. Yeah, of course it is. I wonder what this morning, what do you make of, what do you want to make of the idea of joy? Delight, happiness, good cheer, glee, you know, insert whatever version of that emotion, any version of that concept that you like, do you sit here this morning thinking that that is a desirable thing? That that is something that you want to have, maybe something that you should have? Another question, do you think it's an achievable thing? It's all very well and good with all these promises, with all these hopes. Yes, I want to be joyful. Do you think it's something that you can be? Is it achievable? Here's, I think, a really interesting question to ask this morning, because I'm assuming we're going to say yes to the first two. Do you think that joy, or whatever word you want to insert there, delight, happiness, good cheer, glee, do you think it's something that's preservable? Do you think it's something that you can keep? Do you think it's something that you can hang on for? Or is it like a fleeting idea, a fleeting concept, something that comes and goes, and you want to make the most of it while it's here, but you really better had enjoy it while it lasts because it's slippery and it's gone the next moment. You may not have noticed particularly, but I think what we've just done with the uh, lines from carols there, that the concept of joy permeates everything Christmas season. It's mentioned explicitly or tangentially in so many of the songs that we sing. I don't think you can pick up a pack, a pile of cards that have come through the door without finding joy kind of like as a word spread across the front in the same way as we've considered hope and peace. Joy just seems to be the sort of thing that whether we've noticed it or not is on the tip of our tongue, is within easy reach every single day of Christmas. Joy is literally part of the Christmas story. It is literally part of our Christmas season. But more than that, if we have eyes to see it, we'll see that joy is part of the entire Bible story. I want to illustrate this a little bit before we kind of come back to tackle those questions of whether joy is a good thing, whether it's an achievable thing, whether it's a preservable thing. I want us to see why joy is something that's there right throughout the scriptures. You go back to the start, you go back to Genesis 1, you go back to how the author there is reflecting on God making everything, and this is how chapter 1 of the Bible finishes. This is the summation. That God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Yeah, I thought someone was going to shout out joy then, and you know, we'd all have a laugh. No, he saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning. There was the sixth day. Now, if you just stopped reading your Bible there, would you assume that that world, that thing, that place that God had made was a joyful place or a potentially joyful place or not? 
you'd rightly, I think, assume that it's a place where joy can be found. It makes total sense that in a world that's described as being very good, there would be sources of joy. There would be experience of joy. And naturally, if you go to the Psalms, where people sing and praise God for the world that he has made, that's exactly what you find, isn't it? Psalm 65, I'm going to read a decent chunk of it to you now. Let me think. I'm going to read it all to you now. Um, Just see, you don't have to turn there, but just listen to how the psalmist is, all they are doing is opening their eyes out on the world, recognizing God for who he is, and see if you can see the joy in this. Praise is rightfully yours, God in Zion. Vows to you will be fulfilled. All humanity will come to you, the one who hears prayer. Iniquities, they overwhelm me. Only you can atone for our rebellions. How happy is the one who you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. You answer us in righteousness with awe-inspiring works. God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and the distant seas. You establish the mountains by your power. You are robed with strength. You silence the roar of the seas, the roar of their waves and the tumult of the nations. Those who live far away are awed by your signs. You make east and west shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it abundantly, enriching it greatly. God's stream is filled with water, for you prepare the earth in this way, providing people with grain. You soften it with showers and bless its growth, soaking its furrows and leaving, uh, leveling its ridges. You crown the year with your goodness. Your carts overflow with plenty. The wilderness pastures, they overflow. And the hills, the hills themselves are robed with joy. The pastures are clothed with flocks and the valleys covered with grain. They shout in triumph. Indeed, they sing. Like you kind of feel that you're in that Genesis 1 world, don't you? Where everything has been made by God and it is very good. It's not just the beauty that is seen in creation, but it's the abundance that God brings that is described as giving us explicitly joy. There's a sense in which we can read passages like that and we can rightly file away in our brains one of the reasons we should have joy, one of the causes, the occasions for joy, is because of the world that God has made. If we open our eyes and we want to see it, we can be filled with gladness. More than that, though, um, there's, a, there's a, um, the sense in which the things which God gives us in that are there individually, explicitly to give us joy. For example, in Psalm 104, verses 13 to 15, this is what it says. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for the people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth and wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. The picture there is kind of like even more intense, isn't it? That God actually gives us specific things in our lives that are supposed to fulfill certain functions, including bringing us joy. You'd be forgiven, I think, sometimes for um, thinking that Christians are people who aren't supposed to enjoy things. The Christians are only supposed to have bad things to say about everything. 
bad things to say about how people live, what people do, what people think, what people say, what parties they vote for. Now, of course, you can almost open to any page of the Bible, and it will describe a right way of living and a wrong way of living. Those things are there in the Scriptures in abundance. I wonder how much we let people see the joy that we have in life, the joy that we have for the good things, celebrating the good things that God has given us. I don't want to get into a big debate about alcohol or anything like that, but there it is. We believe God's Word, don't we? That wine given from God gladdens human hearts. I wonder if people are more likely to know Christians as people who say, oh, alcohol is bad. This, that, and the other. It can lead to this, it can lead to that. True, all very true, okay? There's an important discussion to be had there. But foundationally, first and foremost, in a world where we're not intentionally rebelling against God or what have you. He's given us things to fill us with joy. Other common sources of joy that are described in the Bible are relationships that we have. Uh, relationships like marriage, relationship like, uh, relationships that we have in our families. And when you stop and you think about it, and that's all the picture that is painted it does really seem like we should be joyful people, happy people, praising people, singing people. But here's the rub, isn't it? Here is the problem, and I've kind of hinted at it already, that when we, if we spend our time with our eyes open, looking for sources of joy in our lives, in the lives of those around us, and in the world that we live in, it won't take us very long to find actually lots and lots of reasons to despair, to grieve. Like it's a true statement that when we look at nature, we observe something that which is unfathomably beautiful. Um, Ray, is Ray about somewhere? Ray Taylor? He has turned me on to Bill Bryson's latest book. I love a bit of Bill Bryson. I love how he dives into various things in exactly the sort of nerdy way that I enjoy devouring them. His latest book is about the human body. And you know what? Just like almost every paragraph, I'm gobsmacked at how wonderful what God has created is, how beautiful, how unfathomably beautiful it is. But yet, when we look at our bodies, when we look at nature around us, we find cruelty and chaos, don't we? We find pain. When we look to God's gifts, things like described in Psalm 104, gifts which are there to gladden our hearts, it doesn't take us very long to find ways in which those gifts are abused. And those gifts actually lead to terrible, painful suffering. They're no longer a source of joy. They are a source of despair and upset. When we look at relationships to find happiness, and I mean like the simplest of relationship, you and an acquaintance, to the most euphoric relationship, we find in them, don't we, it's true, letdowns. We find in them disappointments. We find in them ultimately death, don't we? As people leave us who we've loved so much. 
going back to those original questions about is it desirable, is it achievable, is it preservable, you might actually add into that list of questions, is it even right? Is it even morally speaking right to have joy in the world in which we live? Stay with me, stick with me, think about this. Even for a moment when the backdrop to that joy, whatever it is, is misery, pain, and suffering somewhere else. Can we celebrate if we know that there are others near to us or far from us who are mourning? Can we laugh when if our laughter ceased, we'd be able to hear the sound of crying and weeping from others? Asking the genuine question for us to stop and to think, okay, the world is a wonderful place, but it is a painful place as well. So, so what is the deal with this joy that we're singing about, that we're writing about in cards, that we are promised so much of in the Bible? I actually think joy, if we have eyes to see the world around us, is a hard thing to come by. It's definitely a hard thing to, to grab hold of if it's a reaction to the things that are in front of us. If that is what joy is, a reaction to the things in front of us, then, well, joy to be held has really got to be ignoring the vast, vast majority of things that compete for our attention. So here's an idea. What if we stop seeing joy as a reaction to circumstances, but a choice that we make even in the face of those circumstances? Um, there's another word that we're very familiar with, and this is what I mean when I say come to the carols and you'll find joy everywhere on your cards. It's not always expressed as joy. Sometimes it's, it's expressed in this command form, isn't it? We sing it in the very first song that we sang this morning. Come people of the risen Lord, rejoice, rejoice. It's an instruction, be filled with joy. Not a, a reaction, but a, a decision almost to see the world through a particular lens. You want an example of this? There's uh, is really a great occasion in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, when the people have just been enslaved and oppressed. Uh, they seek God. God leads them out. But before they've really felt the fullness of that rescue and that deliverance, the fullest form most of them will never actually experience, they stand on the shores of the Red Sea. You know the story, God parting the waters so that the Israelites and those who went out with them could go and then close the waters behind them so that those pursuing them couldn't uh, get after them. And on those shores, they've got wild water on one side and wilderness on the next. Like you can paint that as a picture of tremendous rescue or you can paint it as a picture of tremendous uncertainty. Because although the Egyptians who are pursuing them are gone and dealt with, they're still just really in the middle of nowhere, with nowhere to go, and humanly speaking, no hope whatsoever. But what they do at that moment is choose, perhaps they've been instructed to by Moses, but they choose to sing, they choose to praise, they choose to rejoice in God. 
even though the way that lay ahead of them was a, a, was a way without food, was a way without water, it was a way without uh, a home, it was a way without protection in so many senses, apart from God. The story's wonderful because God gives them food, God gives them water, God gives them protection, but that's another sermon, isn't it? But in front of them, wilderness, wildness, difficulties, struggling. When they started walking into that wilderness, a lot of them said, what have you brought us out here for, Lord? To kill us? It would have been better where we were. It's not a pleasant place that they're led into. They turn around, they look the other way. It's not a pleasant place that they've come from. Like the circumstances, if they wanted to choose to react, would not be ones of joy. And yet they praise God. They fix their eyes on Him and they rejoice. And that's more the sense of what we need to be thinking of when we come to Christmas, when we come to passages like JP read to us a moment ago, Luke chapter 2, the announcement that came from that angel, do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. Now, on its own, undoubtedly that is kind of like a joy-inducing moment. If you've been waiting for a rescuer, if you've been waiting for a savior, if you've been waiting for the Lord to come and to put things right, if someone says to you, by the way, he's here right now, that is an occasion that will spark joy, isn't it? You can kind of block out all the pain and the suffering. You can say, oh, he's here, that is good news. The fulfillment of the promise of him who is born to raise the sons of earth, to born to bring them second birth. But when we look at Jesus, we see not just like an occasion for joy, like something which we can turn to and say, oh yeah, that's good news, that's, that's, that's class. I'm cheerful because of that in a moment. We see, we see a whole package, a whole truth, a whole new way of contemplating the world that we live in that means we should be able to react in all circumstances, even when he leaves, with joy. This is actually what Jesus taught his followers about joy. He said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Just taken on its own. That's a really weird thing to say, isn't it? Oh, how tremendous it's going to be for you when all this horrible stuff happens on my account because you've seen me, because you've been drawn to me, because I've invited you to follow me. It's going to be great because everybody's going to hate you. Therefore, rejoice. Like, naturally speaking, we should be saying, well, no, Jesus, that actually sounds like... Uh, you need to explain to me why it's still good to follow you because at the moment all it is is useless. All it is is rubbish. All it is is uh, pain and grief and terribleness. The thing is, what Jesus is saying, what the announcement truly is saying from the angels isn't just here's an occasion for joy, but now that Jesus has come, you can see yourselves, you can see all the hurt, the pain, the suffering, the slander, the persecution, the evil things that are done against you for Jesus' sake. 
as part of something bigger. You don't need to choose one thing and ignore the rest. You just need to see everything in its proper perspective. Jesus' coming wasn't just an occasion for celebration, but somehow it had the power through what he was doing to transform all our circumstances into an occasion for joy, even when we're being mistreated for his sake. And the early church really did get this as a concept. Some of the description of them in the book of Acts is people, in spite of suffering, rejoicing, being glad. Paul was one of the early church's uh, most well-known leaders. He wrote one letter in particular, I think, that focused in on joy, focused in on responding to everything that happened to life with gladness in Jesus. It was written probably in his most difficult period when he was in his imprisonment or one of his imprisonments for his faith in Jesus. And this is what he wrote. I mean, this is just, I just did a little search for joy and rejoice in the book of Philippians. Here, first one, he's responding to reports that there are some people out there who are only sharing the good news, the declaration that Jesus has come for personal gain. This is what he says. You'd think someone who's a leader in the true church would be devastated that that was happening. We'd be devastated nowadays, wouldn't we? And I think in many senses, rightly so. If we heard that someone was declaring Jesus, but really it was only so that they could trick people, that they could manipulate people, that they could use his name for their personal gain. This is what Paul said when he was able to see everything that was going on. What does it matter What's it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, that Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. I choose to rejoice. And he's able to choose to rejoice because he sees the bigger picture, which is Christ being lifted up. He, he wouldn't choose for those people to carry on for as long as they could. He would choose something different. He's got a lot of things to say about false teachers, people who give false hope in in Jesus. But here he says, do you know what? I choose to rejoice. Later on at the conclusion of his, there are other occasions when he says about joy in the letter, but later on he's coming to his conclusion and this is what he says. Some of us looked at it last week in Rooted. Rejoice in the Lord always. And just so that they're clear, he says, I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now, I read out the whole thing because I think it's important to see the context is he assumes that these Christians, like him, are going to be being oppressed, that they are going to be stressed, that they are going to be worrying and anxious about different aspects and elements of their lives, that they're looking around and not everything is sparking joy for them. There are things which are making them sad. There are things that are making them grieve. There are things that they are making them doubt. And in that context, he says, rejoice. I say it again, rejoice. Why? Because the bigger picture is this, the Lord is near. You can pray to him. You can bring your problems. You can bring your petitions. Not forgetting thankfulness, recognizing the fact that Jesus has come for a very explicit purpose, You can bring those to God and you can 
rejoice. Do you see it? Do you see the command, the instruction, the pattern of, in spite of living in a world that is full of pain, in spite of experiencing it ourselves, we're supposed to be people who rejoice. How can that be? Well, it's essentially, it's the particular circumstances of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, isn't it? And how far-reaching the actions of that one man truly are. Jesus' coming and living and dying are so important, they are so powerful and profound that they transform every and any other circumstance that we might find ourselves in. Jesus' incarnation helps us to see the big picture surrounding our lives. I don't know whether you've ever had this conversation with someone Uh, Maybe that's someone you've had the conversation with is you in your own mind. But people will often say, won't they, that they can't believe in God because of all the pain and of all the suffering and of all the misery in the world. And it feels like an absolute deal clincher. That if God is loving, he would do something about all that. And that still exists, so God either doesn't love us or he doesn't exist anyway. We don't need to bother with him. And yet, here is what Jesus is coming into our world. Here is what um, the eternal son taking on flesh, lying in a manger, growing up, living a life, dying a death, raising to new life again, ascending to heaven, promising to come back and recreate all things. It's him answering that exact question. Like, how well do we know the suffering and the pain and the misery of this world? I think at various times, we know it very well. I don't think we know it half as well as Jesus knew it. Jesus, who truly knew what the world should be like, what life in his creation should be like, and yet he experienced all of our pain and all of our hurt. Why aren't you doing something about it, Jesus? didn't just live so that he could sympathize with us. He lived so that he could die and that he could rise again, literally to do something about the very thing that we have a problem with. The pain that we put each other through. The pain and the grief that the world that we live in brings on us. The judgment, the separation, the distance that we feel from our Creator, all of these things, Jesus was literally coming to put right. He entered he endured, he conquered. That is the reason that we can have joy, we can rejoice in any and all circumstances. That's why Jesus can command his followers to rejoice. That's why Paul can pass on that really good advice and instruction to the church in Philippi. Because once they've seen that, they understand everything. Now that is not an instruction not to feel sad. Got to be really clear about this. This isn't like a way of tricking ourselves into turning that frown upside down and just going through life as if there are no problems. Jesus wept. Jesus was down. Jesus felt the weight of living in this world. And he doesn't tell us to ignore that. What he does tell us to do is to see those things in the light of what he has done. Uh, a picture is going to come up, I think. This is 
This makes sense to me. I hope it makes sense to you. Okay. This is a picture. You can all say, oh, oh, thank you, Donna, of a very cute dog called Ollie and a well-decorated Christmas tree. I think we'll all agree. Okay. Um, now, looking at that picture, you don't really get the scope and the scale of everything that's going on. That tree is a seven-foot Christmas tree, and that dog is probably at most a foot long. But the way the picture is taken, camera down, the, the, the lens focused on Ollie, kind of distorts those ratios, doesn't it? It doesn't look to us very much like the tree is particularly big, and it certainly doesn't look like Ollie is a tiny little dog that you could hold like that in your arm. Because our perspective, our point of view, is skewed to focusing in on the dog. Now, if we were in the room now and we said to Daniel, Dan, come on, mate. Tell life as it truly is. Step back, get everything in frame, line things up properly. The picture would look very different, wouldn't it? It would look like the tree was bigger than it appears there and the dog is smaller than it appears there. The, the reality, the true picture is of a seven-foot tree and a tiny little dog. Ems, you can knock that off. I don't want people to be too distracted. We can go back to the PowerPoint if that's okay. And that is what we're commanded to do in Jesus, is to have the right, the proper perspective. I wasn't suggesting that we Photoshop Ollie out of the picture in order to see the tree as it really is. The picture, if taken properly, will be of a tree and a dog. Those things will exist. But reorientating the camera, refocusing the lens, will help us to see things as they truly are. And that is what we're called to as Christians. Not to ignore, but not to focus in on the problem. To, to look up, to see Jesus, to understand and to see everything in the light that he shines on it. And we're about to take communion now. And that is like a practical opportunity for us to do that. For us to rejoice, for us to choose joy, to reorientate the camera of our lives and our vision in a proper way. I mean, I don't know how many people are here this morning, but it's an easy guess to make that there are some who are miserable, who genuinely are just sad. It's probably even easier to guess that there are many people who haven't been able to make it here today because that misery and that sadness has just made it feel like too much to even come out and to fellowship with everybody else. If we list the things that are happening in our lives or in the lives of those close to us, we'd all agree, it sucks. It genuinely sucks. Don't wouldn't even need to take my word for it. You could ask Jesus, and do you know what? He would agree, yes, it's awful, it's terrible, it's horrible. And yet, we come together in Jesus' name this morning. And we come together for a time, you, we've been doing it already, we can continue to do it, whether you notice it or not, of considering, of contemplating his coming, his living, his dying, his rising again, his coming back to make everything new. That's why we come to take the bread, his body. That's why we come to take the juice, the wine, his blood, so that we can see life as it truly, truly is. 
not distorted as our focus is on the objectively horrible things that might be going on to the exclusion of the glorious crucifix-shaped light which shines on it all. Remember I said about the Israelites on the bank on the shores of the Red Sea? They had waters on one side. They had wilderness on the other. They may have needed uh, a little bit of encouragement, but what did they do? They looked to Yahweh. They looked to their God. The encouragement didn't come from what was before them. The encouragement certainly didn't come from what was behind them. It came from the God in whose hands they were. And so it is with us and Jesus. I cannot stress enough how truly he knows what life is like here on this earth. How ruined it has been by our turning our backs on God, on him. He doesn't just know about it, though. He did something about it. And his doing about it, something about it, has changed everything forever for us. And we'll get to experience that in a special way when he returns. But for right now, we need to have the right focus. We need to have the right gaze. That's why you're invited to come. In communion, come at Christmas time. Come every Sunday as we gather in Jesus' name to see to understand, to trust, to believe that joy has come. Is it desirable? I mean, it's got to be desirable, isn't it? Is it achievable? Of course it's achievable. We've all felt it in the past. Is it preservable? I think if we understand it like this, as seeing life through Jesus, as seeing the world as it is with him having come for our sakes, him ruling and reigning as he does, him coming back at the end to, to seal the deal, well then, I think it is something that's preservable. I want to invite you as we take the bread and we take the juice, as we take and remember his body and his blood, I want you to choose joy. I want you to focus in on that ultimate circumstance that Jesus has begun a good work, and he will bring it to completion. A restoration which each and every one of us, because of what he has done, are invited to. A true and a lasting and unshakable reason for joy. hope that you found today's message useful and challenging and we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amforchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss if you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church make sure to like us on Facebook and lastly check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts Thanks for listening.